I have a friend named Michael J. Lewis, who dates back in my life to 1993 and The Review, the University of Delaware's student newspaper. And through the years, Lewis worked for a bunch of different publications, writing about all sorts of stuff. These days, however, he's mainly busy raising his two sons, except when the U.S. Open comes to New York. Lou loves the U.S. Open, loves it. And because of that, he's decided the best thing he can do every year is pitch his services to as many newspapers around the country as possible, offering to profile and chronicle the exploits of the local stars. As a result, this year, Lou wrote for 21 different outlets, 20 fucking one, and made good money doing so. It's an amazing ode to hustle, to elbow grease, to doggedness. And it's all Michael J. Lewis, not the Moneyball one. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's guest is Ruby Kramer, a political features writer for the Washington Post and author of an outstanding new piece, When a Man with a Pistol Shows Up Outside a Congresswoman's House. Ruby is also the daughter of the late Richard Ben Kramer, one of the great writers of my lifetime. This is episode number 276. Let's sling some yang. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Ruby. First of all, thank you for being here live from New York. And I just want to say, you just told me something that deeply offended me, and I'm thinking thinking I wasn't going to bring this up, but fuck that. You don't listen to podcasts. You're the one journalist who doesn't listen to podcasts, Ruby, and I'd like to know why. I I, I am now completely, like, I'm blushing. Um, I just, my, yeah, my brain doesn't, like process what I'm listening to. So I'll start a podcast and then I'll realize 15 minutes later that I haven't processed anything that I've just heard. So, I mean, clearly something's wrong with me and I should go get it checked out. Like the problem is me. It's not the podcast world. I don't know if you heard, but the Washington post has podcasts. I don't know. I know <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and I have been on them. Like I have been lucky to be a guest on said podcast. And I basically begged them to have me on because it's like a way to get your stories out to people. Right. Um, but, you know, the only thing that I can't, that I do even worse than listening to a regular podcast is like listening to the sound of my own voice. So um, I won't be listening to the post podcast episodes that they have me on because I can't stand to hear myself talk. I was actually going to tell you and uh, bring this up. If you could maybe talk in a different voice, because your voice is <laughs> annoying. If you could maybe. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah, it's really awful. Let's start over. Can you use like maybe like uh, auto-tune? <laughs> do you have like an auto-tune or something? you could? No, I got to order that from Amazon. Yeah, please do. Um, all right. So I, uh, you know, I meant to have you on a long time ago. Either I screwed it up or you say you screwed it up. I think I screwed up. And I'm actually glad I didn't because you have a story that came out, taste September 12th, came out September 8th. When a man with a pistol shows up outside a congresswoman's house, this is for the Washington Post, Rep. Pramila Jayapal recounts the night an armed man shouted at her and her husband outside their Senate home and how threats of political violence haunt and alter the lives of elected officials. And I just want to read your lead real quick. You did it uh, with different time breakdowns and sections. So this is in Seattle, Washington. It's a dateline, 1038 p.m. And you wrote, everyone could hear the men on the street. The car, a black Dodge Challenger with gold rims, sped down the block just past a congresswoman's house. Two voices shot through the dark. Hey, Pramila, the first uh, man shouted, fuck you. Then came the second. Fuck you, cunt. And just to be clear, in the Washington Post, the words are dotted out. Uh, The neighbors knew the car. 
It was the same Dodge Challenger they'd seen several times that summer, but she didn't know this yet. Um, it's a really freaking insanely good, detailed, step-by-step piece about the experience of a congresswoman being threatened in as close a physical proximity as one can. Um, I kind of enjoy the soup to nutsness of this all. Like, how did you even decide to do this story? How did this come to be? Yeah, um, I saw some local headlines out of Seattle about Jayapal being repeatedly harassed by this guy. And it all culminated in what became the sort of center of my story, which is this incident that occurred on July 9th, a Saturday night um, outside her house. And, you know, I mean, the local headlines basically were like a summary of the police blotter from that night. And I was just thinking, God, this is like the seventh or eighth story like this that I've seen this summer alone about a politician being threatened with, you know, angry voicemails or you know, in one case, like charged on stage, it just felt like, God, like I keep seeing these things. And obviously we know from studies and statistics and polling that like political violence is kind of like on the rise sentiment wise in America. And we've seen that since January 6th. And I just thought there's got to be more to the story in terms of if this guy was repeatedly showing up outside a congresswoman's house, that's, that's her safe space. Like that's her neighborhood that's the place where she goes every weekend. That's her refuge. I mean, that's her home. So I just knew that there was more to the story psychologically, even if there wasn't going to be a lot of like action, so to speak, in terms of what actually occurred that night. And I reached out to her um, and kind of started the process of talking to her about what I wanted to do. Um, Wait, before you go on, I want to ask, how did you reach out to her? Yeah. I'm very step-by-step step here. How did you actually reach okay. out to her? So I knew that her, one of her consultants, someone who's helping her campaign was a guy who I knew pretty well from covering Bernie Sanders 2020 race. So I texted him and I was like, Hey, what's this all about? Do you, do you think Pramila would talk to me about it? And I said, right from the start, we want this to be a story about what happened to her as a window into this new environment that we're living in, into the rise of political violence, this, and and, and especially harassment and threats that are directed towards women of color and women in public office. And he kind of like, you know, we have a, we knew each other, like, basically, this is someone who I spent, you know, hundreds of hours with on a press bus in Iowa, right? Like four years ago. So um, he totally got it. He knows kind of my sensibility, which I would kind of describe as wanting to bring a human element to stories about politics and the people who work in politics. And so I think that he knew that I wanted to do a piece that would be fairly nuanced and thoughtful and would try to capture sort of the human element of what it's like when something like this occurs. And my interest, and I didn't have answers to these questions, but I was like, you know, what, what happens after something like this? Do you even feel safe in your house anymore? Do you cancel all your trips that you had on the schedule? Do you get private security? How do you pay for private security? Do you go on living as a normal member of society? Cause I think a lot of people don't realize 
members of Congress don't have like bodyguards, you know, they don't have secret service. They don't have um, kind of like protective measures when they go out to dinner or they go certainly well, not when they're just like hanging out at their house on a Saturday night, which is when this, this happened. So um, I kind of wanted it to be, I mean, I think that the way I pitched it to my editor was I want this to be like the anatomy of a political threat. Like what actually happens? Let's break it down in the most granular detail that we possibly can and show how this does or does not alter the life of somebody in politics. Okay. So I assume they say, okay, let's do this. Well, it wasn't that fast. He was like, I get it. Let me talk to her. We went back and forth. Then meanwhile, I started to like put the gears in motion to see if I could get any police documents, um, discovery materials, stuff like that through a public records request. And that's always, I didn't have high hopes for that because sometimes those take months and I was wanting to move a little quicker. And I think I started this process like August, early August, and the story came out about a month later. So it was, I was finally able to get all those documents that I wanted and more, um, but I kind of got lucky uh, and I can, go in like that's kind of a boring story but i can go into that if you want oh, wait 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 wait! But, not boring because i feel like the, the funny thing is like i've been a reporter for 30 years and we all have our strengths and weaknesses yeah i feel like my strength is calling everyone but my weakness is actually knowing how to work the system as far as getting this tape. oh same i am like not a foia per, like i just i'm like a, a dummy when it comes to this i like call the front desk and i'm like how do i do it can you walk me through it and like usually you find someone who eventually you find someone hopefully the, the hope is you find someone who's willing to take pity on you and walk you through the process which is ultimately thank god what i was able to find but it wasn't through the seattle police department which was my first idea it was through the prosecutor's office so i looked up who the prosecutor was on the case saw some case file that i found online i don't think i just looked through google like thank god i found it reached out to him expecting him to totally ghost me because what incentive does a prosecutor ever have in talking to a reporter? He happened to be a nice guy and helped connect me with the public records woman in charge in the prosecutor's office and things went from there. But yeah, for me too, I'm like, that's just so not my strength. And I like just always try to find someone who is willing to take pity on me and help me. Wait, I actually think the great lesson, cause I'm the same way, like know some smart people. Yes. Yes. You can, you as the writer and reporter be the generalist, right? Go into every situation being like, gee, like, gosh, shucks. Like, I really don't know what I'm doing. Can you help me understand? And then have the expert help you. That's just in general, I think a great approach to reporting. Cause if you go in thinking, I already know what the story is. I know this subject better than the people who are involved in it. Like you're not going to learn anything. So I think going in and asking the stupid questions and saying like, you know, can you just help me help me understand is like the best, most blanket rule for reporting. And that's, you know, I found that to be true when I was like 22 and just starting. I think that's still true for me now. Wait, you said something that I I just as a tangent, but I it changed my life as a journalist was. Don't go into a story knowing what the story is going to be is one of the most important things I ever, I used to go into stories being like, all right, I'm going to make this story about the baseball player who is misunderstood, but he's really a good guy, blah, blah, blah. 
As soon as you go in with a blank slate, it changes everything and makes you a million times better. Yes, I totally agree. And I think with politics and political reporting, there's uh, two things. One, there's a huge culture of like expert gamesmanship, people who are like, well, based on the polls, you can see that blah, 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 clearly, you know, needless to say, blah, blah. and I just try to push all of that out. And it's, for some reporters, I think it works, but the culture of it is really strong in political journalism. And I just try to like have nothing to do with it. And then the second thing I think is in political journalism, there's a sense when you're first starting out that there is kind of like a secret way. There are secret rules. And once you learn how, what the rules are and how to do it, then you'll be good. And when I was first starting, I was like, oh my God, all these experienced reporters know how to talk to sources and they have their sources. And I don't know how to talk to these people. And I don't know what the rules of the game are. And you know, I was kind of pretending like I did and just trying to feel my way through it. And then I realized no one knows what they're doing at any point in time. And there are no rules. There is no secret language that, you know, sets the rules of the game and is really how your how quote unquote, how things should be done. No one knows anything. And so I think once I, similar to you, once I disabused myself of that entire notion, I was like, okay, now I can actually be free and do what I, you know, do the job. Wait, I love, love, love. Okay. Right. Like, so I'm 50 years old. I've written a bunch of books, whatever, blah. You're in your thirties, right? For the Washington Post. Yeah. Yeah. When you were like, when you were younger and you were looking at someone in the thirties, watching, look, writing for the Washington Post. And when I was younger and I was looking at someone my age, writing books, I assumed they knew everything and I didn't know totally. anything. And now here we are in these positions and we don't know shit. Like, it's like you realize like it was all, it was all your own interpretive dance of yes. what you thought they were. And they're not. Yeah. It's, it's totally the big, it's like the biggest self-inflicted wound on young journalists is psyching yourself out thinking that you don't belong or you don't know the rules or you don't know what you're doing. Therefore you shouldn't even try. And it's like, God, it took me more than 10 years to figure out that's the whole, I kind of the whole idea of the going, like you said, going into a story and being like, I am totally open. I don't know what I'm doing. Yep. I need people to help me understand what the story is and help me understand how you, the subject feels about things and views the world. And yeah, I just found that it took me a long time to come to that realization. And I found it to be the most helpful thing I could have possibly done. And yeah, we don't know anything. So this, warms my, this is, I mean, this is freaking soup for my soul. Like um, <laughs> I love, and I never, I was always afraid to do this. Right? I wouldn't even think to do it. You're allowed to say to someone you're interviewing, I don't really know what I'm talking about here. I just want you to know, walk me through it because I actually, instead of bullshitting your way through, which I used to do when I was a young baseball writer, I would pretend I knew all these things that I just, I didn't know. And now yeah. I'm older and I should know more, but I admit I know less. Yes. Uh, yes, right. I totally agree. 100%. I totally agree. It's a beautiful thing. It's a, because it's the most confident position you can be in is being comfortable saying, I need your help. Help me understand. I'm going to ask some questions that are going to sound really layman, right? Like walk me through it. Right. I, I just, I think that is like the ultimate confidence. Oh, yeah. Whereas when I was 22, I was like so insecure and afraid to come to anything from that kind of position. 
I feel like the best freaking buffer of a question is starting a question by saying this might be a stupid question, but even if yeah. no such thing as a stupid question, technically, like, right. I know this might sound dumb, but it like, it almost lets the person feel good about talking to you. Yes. I think it's totally disarming and it's makes, yeah, it makes the other person feel like, okay, now I'm really going to explain it to you. And a lot of the time that can be genuinely helpful. And a lot of the time it can be very revealing if you put someone in the position of maybe having the kind of quote unquote upper hand at the conversation, they kind of show their colors a little bit. And in the case of, you know, interviewing a politician that can all always be very fascinating. There's some, always some interesting tension there. I think basically what we're saying and agreeing is this whole thing is basically a dance. Yeah. Yeah. It's It's all a dance. Like, yeah, I ask this, you say this leading to this, then you say this and that leads to this. And finally four questions in, I get to ask this because you've told me this. Yes. Yeah. I think there are some really interesting ways you can approach every conversation that have to do with waiting for the moment where you can really ask the question you want to ask and getting to the point with the person across the table where they feel in whatever way is particular to that conversation, actually comfortable answering it in an open and honest way. And it's always like a different path to get to that moment moment. Yeah. Okay. So back to the story, how yeah. did, you, did, was there finally a moment where they're like, okay, the Congressman will talk, women will talk with you. Yes. It happened a couple weeks into this whole process and, Finally, she said yes. And then it was a matter of scheduling it. Apparently she, you know, based on what this, this guy who my friend told me, she got, she also got the story. She thought it was an important story to share. She's in a, she, before she became a member of Congress, Drive Paul was an activist for many years. So I think she's very into the idea of, you know, sharing vulnerability to use her words and trying to give people a sense of, what it's like to be a woman of color in politics. I think that was very important for her, but she did have some concerns about would the article jeopardize her security? Would it invite more crazies for lack of a better way of putting it out to sort of terrorize her or make her life uncomfortable. And I think she had some long conversations with her husband about it. And eventually they just decided to do it. So I booked a flight to Seattle, went out there Um, I tried to do the interview. I was pushing to do the interview in her home because I always think that's more personal. What is that? When you say I'm pushing to do the interview in your home, what does that actually look like? Well, I mean, so originally her spokesperson, this guy I was dealing with was like, oh, we can have you go to a couple events with her and we can walk, walk to a coffee shop and sit down there. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, no like fine I'll go to the events that's fine like I don't mind doing that and you never know what you'll get from that um you could see like a totally relevant interesting conversation with a voter or a constituent or something like that um but we don't want anything staged for this right like we don't want to manufacture a visit to a coffee shop that she wouldn't otherwise be taking and plus this is a really personal story this is about how um you know, one of the most like intrusive personal things that can happen changes the way that you go about your work physically and psychologically. So I wanted her to be in her home environment, including so that she could tell me like, okay, 
you know, this whole thing started on a Saturday night at 1030. We were sitting over here on the, on this couch. And then we moved into the kitchen and then I was upstairs and my husband was over here and we were, I wanted her to like walk me through it because again, we really wanted this to be in granular detail. So I knew it had to be in her house. I think that took a little bit of convincing. Finally, she said, yes. I mean, I was just very firm on it. I was like, we need to do it in the house. And then um, you basically invited yourself over to her house. Yeah. I mean, but that's kind of what I always want. I'm always like, Uh invite me into your house and let me hang out with your family. And uh, yeah, hopefully you won't mind that I'm bringing a photographer along. (laughs) Like there's always a level at which it does feel kind of manufactured because let's be honest, like it's not every day that you have a reporter like hanging out around you and I don't know. So, but if you, yeah, it's, 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 and it's, you never know how it's going to go until you kind of step past the threshold into the, into the house. You never know if it's going to be like tense or awkward or stilted. Um, In this case, thank God it wasn't. So she, we went into like her backyard sitting area and she just kind of launched right into the whole incident and really understood that the value of the story and the truth of the story was going to come through in the detail that the truth was going to be in the detail. And so she really walked me through the whole thing and it took like a couple hours. um, And I was with her over the course of two days and her husband was there and she was very, um, very open with me. And I think I got, I don't think the story would have succeeded without her being in that space and being willing to share. So I, and that's just kind of luck, you know, you you just never know. I am. I'm a big fan of the like not created scene. Like, you know, the Congresswoman sits in a Starbucks. She takes a sip (laughs) from her mocha and says to the barista, how are you doing today? She looks back, but she looks pensive. You know, like, Oh my God, I know. It's so bad. Um, it's so bad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm also not a fan of that, but so, yeah, sometimes, I mean, hopefully if you do get stuck in that kind of situation, you can find a way out of it. Like there's just nothing worse than banking on having like a great scene in a piece and then kind of coming up dry because then you have to just like, completely reimagine what you had in mind. Um, but I find usually there's some kernel of what you're something that strikes you, something that compels you that you can build a story around. It may not be the thing you expect, obviously. Are you on, this is a nerdy question. Are you recording everything? Do you have a recorder out when you're interviewing her? Yeah, I have a recorder out. I think for this story, we really wanted, we needed it because we knew it was going to have to run through just because it involved a live legal case the case that the prosecutor is bringing against this guy is still being, it's still active. It's moving toward trial. So we knew that the piece would have to be pretty heavily lawyered. And um, so I kind of felt like I had to record it. So I had my little recorder and I have my notebook. Um, but this, and, is super, this is super, 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 super nerdy. Like, yeah. Cause I, that is me. Do you like, <laughs> Okay, when you're having this detailed conversation with someone and it's really personal and it's really sort of painful, um, do you find either or as far as like if you're recording, do you worry that she's going to be staring at the recorder or and also yes. like if you're writing, taking notes, do you worry that that kind of breaks up her? Yes, I worry about that all the time. I find it so awkward and I don't I, I this is probably why I can't listen to podcasts. 
because my brain does not remember anything. Like I cannot, I, I hate to say this, I will never be the kind of journalist who can sit down with a subject, have a conversation with no notebook, tape recorder, and like really reliably remember phrases and details. Um, I know that there are writers out there who can do that and famously have just taken some liberties with, you know, impressionistic memories of scenes and stuff like that. Um, Maybe we can't get away with that as in the journalism industry, as much as they, they did in the eighties. But yeah, I mean, I do think having like a little tape recorder sitting on the coffee table with its stupid little red light shining that you're sort of nervously checking to make sure it's still on the whole time. Yeah. I think it's distracting, but I don't know what the alternative is. I mean, what do you do? I do the same exact thing. And the funny thing is like, you just alluded to this. Like when I was covering baseball back in the day, I'm sure your dad was like this too. Like you're yeah. interviewing someone and you're, I'm not using a tape where I'm just writing everything and yeah. it can't possibly be accurate. No. And I don't care how good your shorthand is. Agreed. If anyone still uses shorthand, there's no way it's accurate. And there's no way that you can pay attention and actually listen while you're like furiously scribbling notes. My dad actually, since you mentioned him, had did tell me about a very good trick, which I could never success, like would never be able to successfully implement. But he said that my dad is Richard Kramer, who was a sports writer and wrote about politics and wrote um, a book called what it takes about the 1988 presidential race. And he, I think he said in the writing of that book, but maybe it was this book about DiMaggio. He would sit, a, uh, he would not use a tape recorder, but he would sit with a notebook in his breast pocket of his button down shirt and be talking with the person he was interviewing with. And he would leave the notebook in his pocket, leave the notebook in his pocket, leave the notebook in his pocket. And then when he finally felt like he got to that point, like we were talking about earlier, where the subject is loose and they're saying something that is really interesting, he would take it out and make a little note, not actually to take the note. And maybe he would have been tape recording too. I don't know. But as a signal that to the other person across the table that they've, said something that really like piqued his interest and then he tuck it back in and it it, he said that it would kind of make the other person want to you know get the note make him take the notebook back out right like to say something that would be actually useful and actually interesting enough for him to take the notebook out again so he would only take it out when they were in that mode of of actually revealing some real, real stuff. But yeah, so a great tip if you're, you know, like, uh, yeah, I couldn't do it. <laughs> I wouldn't be able to pull it off. But. All right, so now that you're like a big hoity-toity Washington Post re- report, <laughs> do they have someone transcribe tapes for you? No. God. <laughs> so do you transcribe your own? How do you handle that? Yeah, I use... um I use, I'm now one of the like young kids who uses one of these transcription automated services, which I actually really worry about because I'm sure they're sending all my information and sensitive audio files to like Russia, who knows where. Yeah. I think some of them are run out of China too. So awesome for, (laughs) for me. Um, But I basically I'll drop the audio files into that thing. It'll spit back. 
a pretty okay kind of choppy transcript and then I'll go through it again and listen and edit it. Mm. Um, I don't know what I even did for most of my career without those little machine, those little AI machines, because now they really save me some time. But um, yeah, I hate, I mean, who doesn't hate transcribing? It's painful because again, you have to listen to your own voice. I mean, it sucks. Wait, we would agree. Worst part of this job. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I dread it. I push it off for days. I let the transcription pile up as I continue to like, I procrastinate doing the transcribing by doing more interviews Therefore, increasing the amount of transcribing that I have to do until finally I have not only like passed the point that I should have had the transcription done, I have passed like the deadline for a first draft, haven't even started writing, haven't even started transcribing, telling my editor like, oh yeah, it's coming along fine. I just need some more extra time. Meanwhile, I can't actually start writing until I've done the transcribing. And it's like this whole crisis and yeah. I got to, I've gotten better about it, but it's, it's pretty bad. It's pretty hey Ruby, bad. you know what the, le- the lesson here is, is like, Just hey, do kid, it. hey kids, two veteran journalists here. And here's the lesson. It never gets easier. It never. It's, true. it's so, I think it's actually getting worse. Yeah. Cause you stand higher. Yeah. Well, and also like, I didn't mind as much when I was in my twenties. Cause it was just, I was just so excited to do it all. Um, not that I'm not excited now. I'm just, I have a little bit more like more of the dread, the writer's dread. And then the transcribing dread just adds on to it. Yeah. Before we continue with two writers singing Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who leaves for her sophomore year of college in just a few days. Father, I'm very upset. Don't worry, Casey. You'll be homesick for a few days, but then you'll adjust. Plus, I'll call you all the time. Um, please don't. I'm only upset because I really want to order a Seattle Steelheads jersey from RoyalRetros.com, but they have my home address on file. I mean, all you have to do is go to RoyalRetros.com, change your address, and you'll be receiving a handcrafted, 100% authentic throwback jersey in no time. You know, I'll also miss you too. Really? Are you paying for my jersey? No. Never mind. All right, some things about this story that I'm interested in. You wrote, um... The items on the porch sat undisturbed. Sneakers, turquoise Crocs, a dog leash, two hanging plants swaying in the night air. Why so specific on what is on the porch? I don't know. I was watching some. So one of the things I got from the public records request was security footage from outside the house while this guy was, you know, revving down the block and screaming obscenities and stuff. And this really violent language, you know, the the post didn't print it, but like you said, like, cunt fuck you go back to india stuff like that it's just you've got this emotionally violent language and then the visual while you're listening to this on the security footage at least is this porch that's just like clearly you know the remnants of a saturday of a normal saturday afternoon right like the dog leash the sneakers that are kind of like splayed out to the side that someone kicked off before they went inside and hanging plants just really still kind of swaying back and forth in the dark, you know, under the porch lights. I just thought it was this contrast of the sound of the voices with, you know, like I said, a normal Saturday afternoon in the summer. When you're interviewing her, is she, um, is she stoic and sort of 
professional? Is she emotional and whatever? Are you looking for certain emotions? Are you, what is that like? You know, we had an interesting conversation about this. Um, Jayapal and I did. Um, so she was pretty detail oriented in going through the incident itself. And only a few times, I think, did the conversation get to the point where she, her voice broke and she shed a few tears. But we were later talking about how, um, you know, some of her male colleagues in Congress had shared violent, her threatening voicemails, you know, audio clips of them on Twitter and had said like, this is the kind of stuff we're getting. And they hadn't really, you know, in her view, they hadn't really hesitated in sharing those things. And she always had, and I think that's because she felt as a woman that maybe she might get some backlash to sharing that stuff. Um, Or that maybe there would be people out there who would say like, this is just a part of the job. Like, of course you're getting like, you know, crazy people who that's been as been true for as long as American politics has existed. Anyway, she said similarly that when a woman in politics sheds a tear, it's like always the lead of the story. And when, you know, Obama cries, for example, like as he did the night before his reelection in 2012, it was like the most iconic photograph from the entire presidential election season. Um, There's like a black and white photo of him on the stump with like a big, heavy tear rolling down his cheek. And it's always viewed as this like really compelling, poignant moment. And so I didn't, she did. So to answer your question, she did get emotional, but I I wanted to include it in the story like pretty flatly and not dwell on it too much. Um, I just wanted, and I think the couple references I have to it are just really bare. Like she started to cry period, like just really as bare as you could possibly describe it. I just didn't want it to be a huge part of the story. And I, I, you know, it's, it's, it's just interesting. It's always, and maybe if I had been interviewing like a guy about this and he had started to cry, I would have actually made it a really big part of the story. I don't know, but I'm always trying, I always try to be a little sensitive to that and just like be, be pretty, um, be pretty straight and flat with the way that I describe female sub women subjects showing emotion. Cause I, I don't know. It's, you never, I don't know. Does that make sense? It 100% makes sense. Okay. 100% makes sense. I actually think um, I've had this happen a few times with my wife where, just as an example, we'll be walking, we'll be in LA and we'll be walking through a parking garage at night, right? And I'll be like, would you um, would you ever walk this by yourself? Like if it was 10 o'clock at night and we yeah. by yourself. Never. She's like, never. And I remember like early on when I just never thought of it before. Like I never thought of that before. I never thought about like, being a woman walking through a parking lot as opposed to be, I've never been afraid to walk through a parking lot. Not one time in my life. Right. And she's always afraid to walk by herself in a parking lot. And I just think men are not fully aware of the different experience that it is to be a woman. And in this situation or that situation or that situation, that situation. And it isn't the same describing a man crying and a woman crying because the perceptions are so strong about each of them 
that it almost lends itself to the quote unquote weak woman narrative. That's obviously bullshit, but it's kind of. Right. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, women in journalism have always had to navigate their writer's voice in relation to what has like historically been a very, you know, the best, you know, the, the best quote unquote writers of the seventies, eighties, nineties are kind of all had this like particular, like male voice, right? Like the Esquire voice or the Rolling Stone voice. And like, I love that. Like my dad was like, he had his own voice. I think that was not like trying to mimic anybody, but, um, just growing up and trying to study that you can't like as a woman, almost like it's not, you really have to find your own template for the kind of writer you want to be. That's not like that gonzo male, like new, new journal, you know, new journalism boys. Cause that, I, I, I don't know, like to, it's interesting. Like you can't, for some reason, I've always found that to be one of one of the many differences in how women writers come to this job versus male writers. Interesting. So does that make you not like one might think, oh, well, she's she's a daughter of a famous writer. She's going to try to stylistically not really depart from her father's style or at least absorb a lot of her father's style. Was that in a way not not possible for you? I mean, I don't think (laughs) I would definitely say that I absorbed some of his style because he raised me like as a human being and we were very close before he passed away. And I think he was and remains the best in his class. And there's a reason that his work meant so much to so many people and continues to endure. Like, who else is, re- you know, who else could write a book about a presidential election that happened, you know, 40 years ago? What is it 40 years? No, almost like a long time ago. Right. Help me. Are you talking about the 92? 82, 88, 88, 88, 98, 2008, 2018. So, uh, 34 possible? years ago. 34, 34 years. years ago. Okay. So we're coming up on 40. Who else? could write a book about an election that happened 30 plus years ago that people are still reading. So like, I'm his biggest fan. He raised me as a person. Like I hear his voice in my head in this really special way, but to think that I could ever be anything other than just me and myself and not like, I'm not trying to mimic him. I'm not trying like, you know, Maybe if he were still around, I could call him up and be like, how would you do it? But I don't know how he would do it because he's not around anymore. So that's kind of sad. But it's interesting because I did I did come up in journalism watching other people try to imitate him. And that's always super flattering, right? Like You're, you're like, talking like, to one of them right now. <laughs> there you go. Seriously, but, you no, but I can I can confidently say, maybe more confidently than anybody, that you can't mimic him because he's one of those writers that so confidently knew his own voice that it was not anyone else's but his. And I think it took him a while to get there. Like, like it does all writers. Um, 
So if anything, that's what I'm trying to imitate, not the voice itself, but just getting to that point where you feel like you are writing and speaking with a voice that's so confidently your own. And that's not about trying to imitate or um, even like seeking validation from others, but from, from what you, you know, to be true yourself um, in terms of style. So I don't know, complicated answer to a complicated question, I guess. Your dad wrote a book. It's Joe DiMaggio, Hero's Life, in, The Hero's Life in 2000. And um, I think I've read it twice. And actually, I always look, it's one of those books I look at when I'm starting a new book. And I can't even understand how he did it. Like, I actually don't understand how he wrote that book. Like, it's so. It's so good. It's so ridiculously good, but it's also so stylistically unique. It's like, you know, most people you read and you, I'm not saying you could. I'm naturally like, oh, I could do this, but I read it and I, I, I at least understand how they did it. Like, I don't yeah. even get, I don't even get how he did that book. It's so breezy, yet informed, yet it's not linear, but it's kind of, I mean, the thing is just a freaking masterclass, you know? I totally agree. And I, um, I have really special memories of my dad when he was writing that book because he, I would sit in his office at our house in Chestertown, Maryland. And the room would be like just desperately full of cigar smoke to the point where I would like have to put my shirt above my nose to breathe. (laughs) But he would read, I would sit there while he would read drafts of that book to me when I was a kid. So that for me was like, that was like the book or the, the work, the piece of work of my dad's where I really started to understand as like a very young adult or a young person, what made him really special as a writer. Cause he kind of let me into his process a little bit. Although I don't really have an answer to the question of how he did it. Cause I <laughs> don't really get it myself, <laughs> but it's a fabulous book. Wait, that came out in 2000. So how oldish were you when he was writing that? So I was like young. I was like almost 10 years old. Okay. So so my kids are uh, 15 and 18, 15 and 19, and they've grown up with me writing books and reading to yeah. them. And I don't really think they give a shit that much. Like, I don't think they're that fascinated yeah. by me reading them passages from a Bo Jackson biography or a Brett Favre biography. You're sitting there, you're little Ruby, you're into it. Like you are, <laughs> little Ruby. you're into like your dad writing it, reading to you and telling you what he's doing. Yeah. I think it was definitely a way for us to connect and, you know, it was fun. Like it, there was great energy. His researcher, Mark Swanitzer, who is a f- close family friend would be there and they would be kind of riffing. And it was great. I just have these really fond memories now that I can look back on. I wouldn't say I understood it. Like I definitely remember the chapters about Marilyn Monroe that went right over my 10 year old head. <laughs> oh, thank God. <laughs> but um I think, and I, yeah, who knows if you had talked to me then, I would have been like, I don't know, it's boring. So I think it's like one of those things that your kids will look back on and in 10, 15 years, they'll think of them as very special memories, even if they don't necessarily like show that much interest now. Your, uh, your dad died in 2013. What, um, yeah. it's a sort of a lame question, but hopefully not a lame answer. Like, what are the things as a writer you, you have taken from him or that stick with you? I think one thing 
that always that I always think about is he would say, you know, you've got to get on the other side of the table with the guy. And what he meant by that is spend enough time with someone where you're not asking for an interview. You're asking to sit in the room while he does interviews with other journalists. So you're getting to the point where you're watching, you're with him or with her, you're with your subject. Um, but you're on the other side of the table with them. So a mental, like, and if you do that enough, then a shift occurs in the dynamic between you and the subject that you're writing about, where instead of, you know, you coming to them with a list of questions and them giving their answers and then leaving the room there, you're watching them do that with other people. And then in between, you know, the interviews, the subject turns to you and they're like, ah, I really messed up that question about X, Y, Z. And then after at that point, a, dy- a shift in the dynamic has occurred where you're getting that sort of next layer of revealing insight and observation where you can really actually see the subject in what is unique, what is authentically their environment as opposed to like this sort of manufactured environment of an interview where, again, you're sitting there with your notebook with your 10 questions that you know you need to ask and they're giving their answers and then like the transaction is done, so to speak, like you want to be on the other side of the table with that person. And so the way that I just explained that is like one way to do it, but I think there are kind of hundreds of little ways to do that, to make those shifts where um, you're getting sort of a different level and layer of observation than, um, than you would otherwise. And if you can just like make those little shifts in, how you approach a subject, I think that's when you get your best stuff. So that's one thing that he taught me um, how to do it is sometimes harder than, you know, takes, takes a lot of time, um, which you don't always have. So, but that's just one thing that's always stuck with me. And I think the other thing is, is stuff we've already talked about, like being that generalist, not coming in thinking, you know, everything, always being this sort of generalist in the conversation where you're asking like, can I really, I need your help, help me understand. That's to me like a telltale. Um, that to me is like a signature of his that made him successful at anything he covered, whether it was baseball or politics or, you know, crime or city politics. It just, that that's like his hallmark to me. And I think that's sort of the foundation of everything that he did. Um, and then, you know, I think the other thing, one of, you know, one of the things he always told me is like, follow your joy, like follow what makes you happy. And I think that was probably life advice, but it's also career advice. Like you've got to follow the sort of joyous parts of the job or else you get burnt out. Um, so finding that joy in the job again and again, I think is something that I, I try to do and yeah. You know what your dad had that was really impressive is um, like up until that DiMaggio book, DiMaggio was like pure, like nobody would talk about the dirt about Joe DiMaggio. No one would talk. Yeah. About it. And like your dad was unafraid to do it. Or if he was afraid, he didn't show he was afraid. He just, he, there are a lot of people who write biographies, but they hold back. Yeah. That book does not hold back. That's what makes it great. It, it was 
raw and honest and real. And he probably knew DiMaggio was going to hate him for it. Or well, I guess DiMaggio was dead when it came out, but he knew DiMaggio's estate would hate him for it. And he probably didn't give a shit. Yeah. I mean, I know he was in a long back and forth with DiMaggio and when DiMaggio was still alive about participation. And it was like, I think he was trying to get him to participate for years. And I remember the lawyer, I God, I can't remember what the lawyer's name is now, but that DiMaggio's lawyer's name in my house growing up was like the, like notorious. Like I was, yeah, he was constantly talking about his like latest fight with that lawyer. And so I know he was really pushing for access, but I think probably the lack of access in the end, or at least the lack of like extended access was one of the things that sort of enabled him to actually do that full story, the one that everybody else was afraid to write. Um, and I think it's part of what makes the book successful, actually. Yeah, it's pretty great. Uh, let me ask you a final, final question. Getting back to the story again, when a man yeah. with a shows up outside a congresswoman's house, the guy who is stalking her out was named Brett Forsell. And, yeah. you know, he's obviously sort of messed and deranged and he's sitting out there and he's barking at her and he's armed and, he's, you know, whatever. Um, is there any thought on your part on actually knocking on his door? Yes. I talked to my editor about doing that. We decided not to do it. Um, I mean, of course we reached out to him multiple times and to his lawyer and, and all that stuff. Um, but I did think about just doing a door knock and trying to talk to him that way. But I think because my editor and I talked about it and I think we decided not to do it mostly because we didn't know what kind of situation we would be walking into. And frankly, I was traveling in Seattle alone. So yeah, maybe not safe. I mean, you just, <laughs> you you just don't know. You just, you just don't know. And so um, we went the route of the lawyer instead. And I, I, yeah, I didn't unfortunately get a chance to talk to him, but it was made clear to me by someone in his life that he had no plans to speak with a journalist. Um, so once I got that message, I at least knew that my, you know, my efforts had been at least acknowledged. Um, you know, I knew at least that he was seeing some of the messages I was leaving or his lawyer at least was so. Did you want to knock or no? Or is it kind of like, yeah, I do. I don't. I do, but I don't. I do. I think it was a, I think it was a, if you want me to knock, I'll do it. (laughs) But I don't need to knock. Like I'm fine to pick up the phone instead. I don't need, and to be frank, like this is not a, I mean, yes, it's an important story. Yes. We are going to take, the every detail extremely seriously we had it lawyered up and down multiple times we would never want to misattribute anything to him or defame him in any way so like we took that all very seriously if this were ever a situation where we absolutely needed needed to talk to him um i would have done the door knock you know so um but it was, you know, it was a situation where I was able to get messages to him and calls to him. And I was able to write his lawyer a very detailed list of facts that were going to be in the story and give them a chance to respond that way. Final, final question. 
did you hear from Pramila, Pramila after the story came out? And um, were you concerned about that at all? Like what you would think of this thing? Um, I was concerned that, no, I wasn't concerned what she would think. I was concerned mostly that some tiny, small detail would be wrong. Yeah. I just like really didn't want that to happen. And thank God, knock on wood, nothing has come up. So, cause we really were very careful with this and um, you know, that's always like worse fear. You don't want to end up with a correction, but no. So I did hear from her. I think she, she thought it was really thoughtful and I, you know, it was, it's always, that's, it's always good to hear that you, you know, you want to hear that the subject feels that they've been, that some elemental piece rings true, right? Like there's no, there's no, there's nothing wrong with saying that. Um, so I heard from her and I know that she actually got a call from, she, she told me she got a call from, from president biden about this piece i guess he so like that was really cool that was cool to know that he read it and i think it's good to shine a spotlight on this issue i mean this is something that politicians are dealing with this is where we are in this country and so it was cool to know that that was getting to a wide you know to that audience that was so that was very cool to hear right ruby i just want to say when you were hired by the Washington Post in April, they issued a kind of release article and they called oh God. one of her generation's dynamic talents. And I'm sure that embarrassed the fuck out of you, but I think you're freaking great. I am. And I love, I know this sounds dumb. Like I love that you're carrying on your dad's sort of work and professionalism and attention to detail and approach to journalism. Like it actually warms my heart. Uh-huh. Um, so I appreciate you doing this too. Oh my God, of course. And that, that doesn't sound dumb. I mean, that's definitely part of the reason that I think I got into the, I mean, 100% part of the reason why I went into this industry is because my dad said such an amazing example. And I just wish he were around to do these stories himself. And um, yeah. Would so, your dad be on Twitter? No. <laughs> absolutely not (laughs) oh no way (laughs) and frankly i'm kind of done with twitter too it's amazing i even saw your dm yeah yeah i feel you uh (laughs) thank you so much for doing this i really appreciate it oh my god of course thank you so much i want to thank today's guest ruby kramer for joining me on two writers singing yang you can follow ruby on twitter at ruby kramer and read her work in the washington post if you have a chance and enjoy two writers singing yang Please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely on word of mouth. Music is by the great MC White Owl. And a reminder, my next book, The Last Folk Hero, The Life and Myth of Bo Jackson, comes out October 25th and is available for pre-order now. Thanks again for joining me. And remember, keep writing.